my fellow plebs, River is setting a new standard in Bitcoin. At river.com, you'll pay zero fees when you dollar cost average. Truly the best way to build your Bitcoin wallet. All Bitcoin at River is held in secure cold storage with 100% full reserves. There's no need to wonder what's happening behind the scenes. Your Bitcoin is your Bitcoin to withdraw at any time. Additionally, River lets you make Bitcoin payments via the Lightning Network, offers a Lightning integration for developers, and allows you to mine Bitcoin directly to your River account. River has a level of service that is unheard of in this industry, including phone support, private client advisors, and the ability to designate beneficiaries to inherit your Bitcoin wealth. River has become the premium name in Bitcoin that anyone can easily access. Sure, you have a place to buy Bitcoin, but have you tried River? See and feel the difference at river.com and the River iOS app, the preferred partner of Bitcoin Magazine. My fellow plebs, today's podcast is also brought to you by Moon Mortgage. As the world moves increasingly towards the mainstream adoption of Bitcoin and other digital assets, Moon Mortgage makes it possible to materialize your assets into real estate. Through the collateralization of mortgages with Bitcoin and other digital assets, Moon Mortgage will be launching lending solutions to allow investors to easily leverage their assets to purchase investments in owner-occupied property. Moon Mortgage's crypto mortgage will be launching soon for home buyers in Texas, Florida, and Colorado, and will also be open to investors in most states across the U.S. for investment properties. Welcome to the future of mortgages. Visit moonmortgage.com today to register and learn more. Moon Mortgage Residential is registered with the NMLS under number 235334. Today's episode is brought to you by Gordon Law Group. If you've tried to do Bitcoin taxes yourself, you know how complicated it is. You can spend hours and hours going through your transactions and researching tax forms and you're still not sure if it's right or if the IRS will come after you. Or maybe you're so intimidated by Bitcoin taxes that you don't even know where to start. Gordon Law Group can help. Ditch the spreadsheets and feel confident with a bulletproof Bitcoin tax return. They can help with IRS payment plans and they also provide a full range of legal and accounting services for Bitcoin and digital asset startups. Get your taxes done right the first time with the original Bitcoin and digital asset tax pros. Go to gordonlawltd.com forward slash BTC. As a bonus, they'll send you the ultimate Bitcoin tax guide for free. That's gordonlawltd.com forward slash BTC. TK, Peruvian Bull, really excited to be here, guys. It's the first Cosmic Bitcoin back from Miami. Feels good to be back in the saddle. It does. And I'm really excited to be jumping on here with you, Spencer, and definitely excited to be jumping on with Peruvian Bull. Bull, we got to actually meet up in Miami. It was cool to hang out. We got to hang out a little bit at the at the after party at the end of the event. How you doing? How's the conference for you? Hey, thanks for having me on. Yeah, I had a great time. Met a ton of people. It was honestly a whirlwind. I feel like I met more people than I ever remember. I tried to get as many Twitter follows as I could. But yeah, it was a great experience. Talked to Alan Farrington, talked to Ben Wehrman, who's another Bitcoiner. Yeah, made a, a lot of good connections. I don't know, did you guys go to the uh, carnivore dinner that Safedine had on, I think it was Friday night? No, unfortunately, I, I was just so swamped with everything going on at the conference. But I'm sure that was a blast. That, that seems like a, a good time for sure. Yeah, so uh... yeah, I'd say you... go ahead. I was gonna say we're, we're not the right people to ask. You know, we, we do our best to put on what we think is the best and biggest Bitcoin event of the year, but we can never actually enjoy ourselves because 
we have to put it on. But, you know, it's a sacrifice that we're willing to make. Yeah, totally. It's worth it. You guys put on a great event. Yeah, it was it was an amazing conference. Yeah, we really appreciate that uh, Premium Bowl. I mean, we all worked really hard, and we're we're really happy to see how it turned out. And uh, yeah, we're we're also super stoked for Nashville next year. So hopefully, we could uh, meet in person there. If I can step away from from the operations for a sec, that that'd be great. But yeah, I guess w- without further ado, you know, I just kind of want to set the stage for this conversation we're going to have, and kind of give our audience a little bit of background on who you are and the kind of work you've Wait, done. Wait, Spencer, uh, before you do that, yeah. l- let, me, let me introduce Cosmic Bitcoin and, and the Bitcoin 2024 conference. Sure thing. Yeah, thank you. So y'all, Cosmic Bitcoin, we come every Wednesday, or we did up until a couple weeks before the conference, but we're bringing it back. Every Wednesday, uh, we are talking to big thinkers in the space. So we're getting past, you know, Bitcoin is going up, Bitcoin is good. We're going to... Bitcoin is going to win. The world is going to change. What is that world going to look like? That's what we talk about on this on this show. Uh, we talk to uh, incredible thinkers like Peruvian Bull who put out great work and have really kind of like put out this kind of thinking around like how Bitcoin works on on in essence and, and how that scales into the future. So excited to get cosmic with Peruvian Bull. Of course, you know, like all past Bitcoin or cosmic Bitcoin spaces, has been brought to you by the Bitcoin Conference, Bitcoin 2024, July 25th through the 27th, now in Nashville, Tennessee. So we used to be in Miami. Now we're moving to Nashville. It's going to be at the Music City Hall, which is right in downtown Nashville. It's an incredible venue. Tennessee and Nashville are an incredible place. I'm actually calling in from here right now. So we have pre-sale tickets going right now. This is the cheapest you can get. Industry pass, GA pass, whale pass to the conference. So get them now. Again, that is July 25th through the 27th, 2024, Nashville, Tennessee. The biggest Bitcoin event of the year. We just wrapped up Bitcoin 2023, which was 15,000 people strong. An incredible event. Met Peruvian Bull there. Met so many incredible people. And that's what Bitcoin and the Bitcoin conference are all about, is people coming together. And and definitely meeting in person is one of the most special parts of the Bitcoin experience. So without further ado, let's get into this episode of Cosmic Bitcoin with Proving Bull. Spencer, I'll finally hand you the mic and you can give the quick introduction. Awesome. Sounds good. Yeah. So uh, Proving Bull, we're we're stoked to have you here today. And I'm just going to give people a little bit of background on you and then we're going to kind of just dive right into some of the work you've done. But for those who don't know, uh, Peruvian Bull works in fintech as a private equity analyst and is the author of The Dollar Endgame, Hyperinflation is Coming, a book, you know, as, as you know, known from the title that understands the dynamics behind, you know, the dollar world reserve currency status and kind of what, you know, potential scenarios down the road will look like. As well, Peruvian Bull publishes under the Peruvian Bull Substack, covering markets, the banking crisis and fiat currency. And yeah, we're, we're really excited to have you on today. I think you've done an excellent job of you know, condensing the complexities of the fiat currency paradigm into something that's like easily understood and kind of shows with an eye towards the future of like, you know, what might this system look like down the road? And yeah, so I think today we're going to kick things off with a little bit of monetary history, kind of setting the stage for how money has evolved through time. Um, And then we're going to kind of get into, you know, how the federal government has put itself between a rock and a hard place with regards to the debt situation. And ultimately, you know, we'd like to try and understand too, like what will the world look like built on sound money with all of this in mind? How will it differ from from the fiat paradigm? Um, And, you know, I guess in that context, too, you know, there have been benefits to the U.S. from being the world reserve currency. 
And then, you know, there has also been drawbacks. So I think it's important to highlight both sides of those coin, the, of that coin as we try to understand what the future might hold. But yeah, Peruvian Bull, I guess, you know, if there's anything you wanted to add, any context for our listeners, I know you recently published your book as well, if you want to just give people a, a small taste of what that was all about. Yeah, so I think you gave a pretty good overview. But yeah, essentially what my work is trying to do is condense the most important themes in macro that I see into like a readable material for the average retail layman. And there's a lot of things that I think are going on in the macro space, specifically in, in you know, dollar funding, as well as just, you know, treasury dynamics and, and the Federal Reserve and their monetary policy and their, the, the severe mistakes they've made in the last two years alone that are setting, setting the, US, the U.S. up for a major crisis. And that's what the dollar endgame is basically trying to get to. And, you know, this is a lot of people have been kind of, you know, hit, hitting this horse, have been beating this dead horse for the last 10 years. But I think that the COVID crisis really accelerated the timelines that we're, we're seeing for the end of the dollar as a world reserve currency, as well as, you know, what comes next. And that's where I think Bitcoin plays a key role in determining, you know, how the global monetary system is going to be structured on a go forward basis. So yeah, I'm excited to start wherever you want. If you want to start with monetary history, we can start there. But yeah, that's essentially what my work claim is trying to do. And I hopefully, hopefully this space will be informative for everyone who listens. Yeah, no, appreciate that. And uh, yeah, I think a good place to start is to just kind of understand, you know, where fiat currency emanated from and kind of the problems that are inherent to it. I know you've done, I listened to a little bit of your podcast, and I know you've done some writing that touches on this, but kind of the idea of fiat currency as something that has, you know, expiration date on it. We have this idea of the Triffin dilemma. And I know that you, you could probably explain that a lot better than me, but it seems to be that there's this kind of inherent problem with being the world reserve currency. And, you know, the, the U.S. has in some ways benefited from this, given its you know, geopolitical standing and ability to control, you know, the global financial system. But this has also come at a cost to things like domestic manufacturing and social cohesion as we try to keep, you know, our, our singular ass on, on two different horses of, you know, either side of the, the Triffin dilemma. So I think that might be a good place to start is like, you know, what does it mean for something to be a world reserve currency and what kind of leverage has that offered and delivered to the U.S.? Sure. So I guess to answer this question best, it's, it's best to go back to the origins of fiat currency itself. And, you know, the Renaissance in the you know, 1400s, 1500s in Italy, several Italian towns began, you know, issuing what would now be considered the modern iterations of world reserve currency, specifically Florence and the Florin. And a lot of these, you know, a lot of these small city states were basically central for global trade as the conduit for commerce between, you know, Northern Europe, Western Europe, and the Middle East, uh, the far reaches of Asia. And the problems that these bankers started to running, in, running into in the very early days in the beginning of, you know, what we would call the modern, you know, Western Westphalian order was the issues of transporting and dividing gold. You know, gold is, a lot of people have talked about this. I'm sure a lot of people on here understand the fundamental characteristics of gold that make it good money. But being extremely durable, being divisible, being basically, you know, un incorruptible, meaning that it can't rust, it can't really decay, makes it very good money in terms of, you know, large transactions and transporting and storing wealth over long periods of time. But the problem arises with small transactions. And so if you look, if, if we created a, a distribution of, of the amount of transactions in an economy, 
the vast majority would be on the very like the the smallest side of the transaction table. So you'd see like 90% of transactions happening with a value of less than $1,000, right? And you can just think of this nominally with, you know, the average transactions that you make every day. Most people don't spend $1,000 or more in a single day. And especially over, you know, several hundred thousand is extremely rare. And so gold is great money, but it runs into this issue of microtransactions. And it's it's not divisible enough and not small enough generally, or it's extremely difficult to carry on grains of gold to pay for, you know, just a morning coffee or, you know, or eggs or bread or whatever you were buying, let's say, in, in, medieval, in medieval Italy. And so the bankers devised this scheme of creating paper money that would back be backed by gold, and they would issue these notes and circulate them as a basically as a medium instead of gold. So this was like a second layer monetary system above the gold standard. And this you know, idea and practice proliferated all throughout Western Europe. And many, many banks, you know, popped up in France, Italy, you know, modern day, basically Amsterdam, where the first central bank was created in 1604. And all of these, all of these banknotes circulating created a problem of, of basically exchange rates, right? Like if you're in Florence and you're going to Genoa, you'll have to switch to a new currency in order to transact over there. Or you'll have to accept a discount because many of the, the banks that you the banks that you're working with don't know the solvency or the you know redeemability of the notes that you're bringing in from another town and so because of this in 1604 the first okay don't quote me on that it's either 1604 or 1609 i know it's one of those two years the central bank the first central bank of the world was created and that was in amsterdam and this was you know initially just a, a solution to this age-old problem of a huge currency exchange you know, traders and merchants would actually have to go to money markets. You know, now nowadays we have the modern money market funds and we have repo funding and dollar funding markets. But this re really originated as traders in 16th century Europe and 17th century Europe that would go to a, a, literally a market for money and you'd be trading the notes from different towns at different parities. And so to get around this problem, and they created a central bank where all the banks could basically store their reserves and the central bank would issue one currency that everyone could use. And initially, this created huge gains in productivity and commerce because, you know, it just made transactions and, and basically like buying and selling much more efficient. And England followed in 1694 with the Bank of England. And, you know, we've basically been under a quasi central bank standard up until, you know, I would say the 1900s when central banks became more and more in the, in the forefront of, of American finance specifically, but also just Western finance in general. And all these banks, you know, run into this issue of is do we issue more notes than gold than we have in the vaults? And it's always a very, very alluring temptation because basically no one ever checks and it's and bank runs generally were rare it's like once every 20 years and so if you can get away with it for a long time and create more notes than exist and basically create a rent seeking apparatus you will and post you know like the 1944 Bretton Woods conference and and the establishment of the dollar as a world reserve currency we became the next forebears of this you know monetary experiment and the quintessential problem that, I mean, you've touched on earlier that basically reserve currency faces that's different from just this initial dilemma that I've talked about with fiat currency is a reserve. So most banks want to issue more notes than gold in the vault, right? But a reserve currency bank has to issue more notes than gold in the vault. And that's a very important distinction because 
any reserve currency, basically they understand that the world will run on their their dollar or their you know pound or previous to that was the Spanish peso. They'll be using their currency for international trade because again, like if you're a small country in Eastern Europe, you don't want your neighbor's currency. You want a currency that can work internationally that you can use for trade with China or Russia or Brazil or South Africa. And so when we became world reserve currency status holder, it meant that by virtue of the fact that we are the the world reserve currency status holder and everyone's going to use our dollar for trade globally, there's going to be international demand for dollars. And so we're going to have to export more dollars than would otherwise be justified forever. And initially this problem doesn't really create, this doesn't really create huge problems because post-World War II, the U.S. is has 50% of the above-ground gold in the world, and we have you know something like 35, 40% of global GDP because Europe lay in ruins. Asia was basically in tatters due to the atomic bombs and our you know evisceration of Japan, and then Japan's also evisceration of those other South African or South Asian countries, and Russia was decimated as well. And so we stood at on top of the global batting order basically alone and and unchallenged. And so the entire world needed dollars, but their amount of dollars that they needed was actually small in comparison to how big we were in the global economy. But as we progressed through the 40s and the 50s and the 60s and into the 70s, and especially post-1971, the global economy really started to boom. And so this, prevented, this presented the, you know, the essential aspect of Triffin's dilemma, which is we have two choices. Either we export more dollars in, or enough dollars to fund global trade and to fund the reserve requirements of all these central banks. Because, you know, if you're a central bank of Italy or you're the central bank of Britain, you need to have dollars on your reserves to defend your currency, as well as your local banks need to have dollars in order to fund, you know, merchant vessels and, and trade and import-export companies. And so there's this global demand for dollars and the demand starts to get worse and worse through the 60s and the 70s. And this is really what caused us to go off the gold standard is all these nations started requiring so many dollars. And then they did the calculus and realized, you know, I think it was French, the prime minister, French president, or I guess President Charles de Gaulle did the calculus in 1965 and realized that we'd issued three times as many notes as we had gold in the vaults. So we devalued our ratio by, you know, 66%. And so he basically started redeeming his dollars for gold and so did many other sovereigns and that created basically a global run on the dollar which nixon was forced to stop in 1971 because we were actually physically running out of gold we we started the 1940s with you know 50 percent of the above ground gold in the world and we ended in in the 19 in 1971 with about 15 percent. so we had been drained significantly and when we moved on to a pure fiat standard Basically, the only things, the only two things that backed the dollar on a go forward basis were the petrodollar system and, you know, the U.S. military is our enforcement of our own uh, network effect. And so this is these are, you know, by no doubt powerful forces, but they're forces that I've mentioned in my work that cannot last forever. And so we're seeing some signs of the global economy starting to push away from dollar dependence and international trade, but also in terms of foreign bank reserves. And this process, in my opinion, is going to accelerate in the future. And this spells disastrous consequences for the U.S. economy as a whole, but also our status as a, as a reserve currency. Thank you, Miami, for the last three years in this amazing city. The whole world shut down. 
But Miami welcomed us with open arms. We want to show Bitcoin to the whole world. We are taking the conference on the road to set the stage for Bitcoin in a new city. Nashville. Bitcoin 2024 is coming to Nashville in Tennessee, a city that is known as a music and freedom city. Bitcoin 2024 in Nashville from July 25th to 27th. Plebs, if you're like me and want to gain a deeper understanding of what's going on within the Bitcoin market and broader macro environment, then you need to subscribe to Bitcoin Magazine Pro today. There's a free and a paid version of this daily newsletter where our market analysts Dylan LeClaire, Dr. Jeff Ross, and Sam Rule break down what's going on in the market so you don't have to. Subscribe today at BitcoinMagazinePro.com. Wow, that, that was amazing. I mean, super well articulated going through just so many eras of currency. Um, but when, when you're going through all that, one thing that caught my mind is your, your use of the phrase, you know, dependence on, on the dollar standard. And I, it feels like, you know, we talk about that in the context of emerging markets or just foreign markets generally as they're dependent on the dollar standard. But I don't think people really realize what that dependence does to the US at the same time. And, and as I mentioned at the beginning of the conversation, there's this idea where we had to become, we had to, you know, harm our exports in order to become, you know, a nation of consumers to be able to get dollars out to the rest of the world. And I was, I was wondering if you could like tease that apart a little bit, like what have the costs of, of this paradigm been to the US? Like, I think that's something just underappreciated is like, you know, people think, you know, it's all been, uh, you know, rainbows and, sun and sunshine for us, you know, being the world reserve currency here in the US. But I think people will kind of gloss over the fact of like, there's a lot of Know, domestic problems that come along with that. So I'd be curious if you had any thoughts. Yeah, of course. Sorry, the mute button was having some time to open up. Okay. Yeah, I would say, I mean, okay, look, well, let's start with the benefits, right? With global international and persistent demand for dollars, that means that first of all, the dollar support or the, the dollar's value is supported on the foreign exchange markets. And so the dollar has a constant, basically a constant buyer, which is something that no other currency has. And so if you're, you know, Japan and you have the yen, or if you're Great Britain with the pound, or if you're the ECB with the euro, you need to, you need as a central bank to store, um, you know, reserves, Forex reserves to defend your currency in case of crisis, because you want to prevent what happened, you know, to Thailand or to Argentina from happening to you. Because if your currency starts falling in the, in the foreign exchange markets, then you need to defend it. And luckily, the U.S. doesn't really need to do that because we know we have global demand for the dollar. And so, you know, our, whereas other central banks might have, you know, like the Bank of Japan had, you know, now they've obviously spent, you know, hundreds of billions defending their, their yen. But as of mid last year, they had something like 1.2 trillion in treasuries um, and then another couple hundred billion in the capital account of the Fed in dollars. And we have $38 billion of foreign exchange reserves total. And we're, you know, one of the largest economies in the world. And so we don't, we have this privilege where we don't need to hold other countries' currencies as reserves because we are the reserve currency. And then we also have the benefit of basically constant capital inflows into the U.S. Because remember, we're exporting more dollars than we otherwise would. And so all these dollars are ending up on the balance sheets of overseas financial institutions. And so all these institutions generally... They want to get a yield. They want to park this money somewhere. And so what they've been doing for the past 50 years is recycling these dollars back into the U.S., usually in form of treasuries 
but more recently in form of MBS, U.S. equities, U.S. bonds, corporate bonds, you know, derivatives. Basically, the U.S. financial market has had a an upward buoy in in like, you know, ingrained in the in the code since the beginning, since 1971. And so this has meant that the U.S. financial elite wealth has ballooned by more than any other country's elite wealth by quite a large factor. And if you look at a chart of, I'm going to try to also find some of the, because I have a couple threads on this and I want to like share some of the, the graphics that I made. But if you look at the, like a chart of the U.S. emerging markets, the U.S.'s equity markets versus emerging markets and developed markets, basically we've soared past all of them for the last 15, 20 years, just because of this dynamic of dollar recycling, pumping tons and tons of money into our financial system. And, you know, if you're a sovereign wealth fund and you're in, let's say, you know, Norway or you're in Sweden or you're in Saudi Arabia, there's not really anywhere better for you to place your money than the U.S. than the U.S. financial system, because we have, you know, the deepest and most liquid equity and treasury markets in the world. And we have rule of law, at least, you know, supposedly. And so there's this basically this giant international persistent flow of money into the US and into US financial markets. And so the benefit is we've 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 had increased investment and increased stock market prices for the better part of the last 20 years. But the drawbacks I think were not apparent in the very beginning stages of the I just I just shared one of the graphics I made by the way if everyone wants to see it. The the benefit or the, the drawbacks were not very apparent at the very beginning when this when this you know pure fiat petrodollar system was first created, but they started to emerge um, in the 80s and 90s, but especially after the 2000s. And one of the drawbacks is because we're a persistent exporter of dollars, it means that we're a persistent importer of goods. And so this means that we cannot be producing most of our own domestic manufactured goods here. We have to allow other countries to produce them elsewhere, and we have to send dollars abroad to buy them and send them back here. And so because of that, we've seen a complete evisceration of the U.S. domestic manufacturing sector and a loss of jobs in the American heartland, specifically the Midwest and the Rust Belt states. And so if you look at, for example, you know, drug overdose deaths, rates of depression and suicide, you look at you know, economic growth in a lot of these states, it's fallen off a cliff, especially post you know, 2000, just because of this dynamic of you know, other all their countries being forced to move or us being forced to move our manufacturing overseas just to allow other countries to have trade exports with us, surpluses with us. But that means that we lose domestic manufacturing here. And long run, you know, this isn't sustainable because as a country, we're becoming less and less productive in real goods and we're becoming more and more productive in just dollars and debt. And what I've you know mentioned before is that you know debt is a is a backer of of the U.S. dollar, and that's the basically the ultimate thing that that withhold that you know stands on the back of the U.S. financial system and the global financial system, and that's fine as long as the debt is solvent, as long as it's actually able to be paid back. But once it's not, then you start to run into severe issues where all these countries start to realize, hey, if I'm holding treasuries and the treasury may default or the treasury might not just inflate their way out of this problem what's the point of be holding this as a reserve asset and that gets into you know what we can touch on next but yeah that's what i would say are the main drawbacks although there are many more that we're probably glossing over before we kind of get to to what's next i just want to like double tap on on kind of like a core idea here it's and it's something that i think that bitcoiners 
and other, you know, economists may miss, which is like this idea that like the current finance, global financial system operates on the dollar and the, the dollar system. And that like this idea of de-dollarization, even, even when, you know, dollar assets start kind of misbehaving is it's not that easy because like the actual functional system network and all the other kind of like financial elements that are kind of a part of that system that they're currently operating on, it's difficult to shake even, you know, whether it's on an institutional contract level, all the way to like, you know, individual people who, you know, have been, you know, kind of accustomed to holding dollars, you know, it's pretty sticky. And, you know, the, the shakeout of how things transition, you know, it's not just like hyperinflation and then people move on. Yeah. And I mean, this is kind of what a lot of my threads are trying to do is this battle that I think is going to happen for the future of the global financial system between the U.S. dollar and Bitcoin, basically, because, you know, like you mentioned, the U.S. dollar is central to the global financial system. The more and more research I did on the global monetary system in the past six years, the more I found the centrality of the U.S. dollar to be basically the key underpin to understanding everything. So, I mean, imagine if you're like I just shared, so I shared two different tweets. One of them is using Liberia as a as an example for um, dollar recycling, and another one is just the U.S. net net international investment position. But if imagine if you're a country like Liberia, and if you're you know looking for loans, if you're trying to get a loan in your own currency, most banks are going to quote you something like 10, 12, 15 percent. But if you're going to get a loan in U.S. dollars because they know they don't have the currency and devaluation risk, they're going to quote you five percent. And so all these small countries, as well as even large countries, have been taking out tons and tons of dollar loans through something called the euro dollar market, which has allowed them to more cheaply fund their own you know, domestic investment and capital growth initiatives. But the problem with this is that now there's this global overhang of U.S. dollar debt that's not under the jurisdiction of the, of the Fed or the Treasury that exists outside the U.S. financial system. But it does have touch points with the U.S. financial system through the SWIFT network and through U.S. domestic banks. And so all these countries have U.S. huge amounts of U.S. dollar debts. And if they don't get enough dollars to fund those debts, they start defaulting. Or maybe even worse, they start printing their own currencies in order to avoid defaulting. And so the currency crises that we saw happen with the euro and the pound and the yen last year, you know, that's not over. It, we may be in a, in a period of doldrums where these countries have found and, and rates are high enough in the U.S. and high enough there to stabilize things for the short term. But the problem of $20 trillion of, of debt issued to countries globally, that's not that they can't, you know, print money to to service is still an issue. And so all these countries exist in a paradigm where they have a ton of debt in a, in a currency that they cannot pay back without earning more through either devaluing their currency or in, increasing exports to the US. And so if US domestic growth falls off a cliff, if we have a severe recession here and our, our imports fall down, that will actually create a, a, a currency crisis in basically the rest of the world. And that's the basis for the dollar milkshake theory, but it's also the basis for my kind of, I guess, supposition that the global financial system has created this sort of Damocles that hangs over all of us because there's all this dollar debt that needs to be serviced. And if it's not serviced, really bad things start happening. And so the Fed and the Treasury, as well as the, the global, the U.S. domestic banking system, has to send out more dollars, more and more dollars to continually service this debt. 
And remember, the debt is at 5% rates, most of it's short-term debt, and most of it gets refinanced every couple of years. And so this is an exponential process of more debt is issued, more interest is, is called on that debt, and then there's more demand for U.S. dollars, which means we print out more dollars and send them to the global financial system, which allows these banks to, to create more dollars. And it just is a continual feedback, feedback loop of demand for dollars, which if the Fed wants to avoid currency crises in other countries, they have to print to remedy. So basically, my conclusion from this entire trap that we're in is that no other fiat currency currently stands in a strong enough position to be the next world reserve currency. None. Because, you know, the ruble, the yuan, the yen, th those are all issued by net export exporting countries. And so if they want to become a reserve currency, they need to start basically becoming an exporter of their own currency, which means they're net importers. They'd have to reverse course on their own manufacturing sectors, which would wreak havoc on their economy in, in the short and medium term. And so not even to mention, like China has closed capital accounts and Russia is, is banned from the SWIFT network. So there's severe issues with basically any of these individual countries supplanting the U.S. dollar. But there is no issue with Bitcoin doing the same because Bitcoin doesn't have to deal with Triffin's Dilemma in the same way that a fiat currency does because Triffin's Dilemma only deals with a monetary asset that's centrally issued. And because Bitcoin does not have a single central issuer, it basically negates all of the negative aspects of Triffin's Dilemma. And so, yeah, the global financial system will... The only way I see it moving forward is either, you know, something like an SDR, like a global CBDC or Bitcoin. And that's kind of the crossroads we find ourselves at. Yeah, I mean, I'm going to let Spencer, you know, ask a follow up question around rates and inflation and things like that. But I just want to again, I haven't really asked any questions. I've just been making statements where I pretty much agree with you. You know, I do a show with Ansel Lindner every single Thursday. So we're doing one tomorrow. And one of the big thesis of the show called FedWatch is that one that, you know, other fiat currencies aren't in place to replace the dollar. And if anything, the dollar is just wreaking havoc on its users and is kind of doing that in the wake of, of Bitcoin kind of rising. So I think that that's an unpopular opinion. I think part of that opinion is not necessarily thinking that CBDCs have too much credence or anything like that. I'm kind of curious if you have any strong opinions about CBDCs before we jump into the next subject. Sure. I mean, I think that they are like an Orwellian nightmare, basically. It's, it, it's a Keynesian pipe dream and an Orwellian nightmare because a, a, even a, a local CBDC would allow for unprecedented control over a monetary system in, at a level that has never been basically possible before. You know, our, our system is extremely fractured, extremely complex, hard to view, which makes it difficult for, you know, analysts to parse through the data and to understand what's going on. But it also is somewhat of a benefit because it makes it really hard for the government to, you know, crack down on individuals or like stop people from, you know, let's say funding, mon sending money to the Canadian truckers unless they have like direct talks with the highest level banks to shut down individual accounts. But that that whole thing falls apart and especially and very rapidly if you introduce CBDCs because a CBDC by definition is centrally issued, you know, and if it's built on ERC-20 and the proper permissions are built in, it means that basically the treasury could go in and code inflation rates into your bank account where they would seize a certain amount of money every single day or even every single minute or they would ban you from transacting in certain 
goods or services that they deem as inappropriate. Or if you are, for example, like let's say you're attending a protest and they can see that mm-hmm. you're in the location, they could shut down your ability to buy or sell like, you know, let's say transport services. So you couldn't ride the bus or you couldn't get an Uber to get to and from the protest. And so, and again, cool. these... Yeah, I don't, what I don't mean to interrupt, and I, I think that a lot of people listening probably see these downsides of CBDCs, but, you know, do you agree that they're unlikely to actually work? And if so, why? I think it's, uh, unfortunately, I think it's a toss-up because the problem is most people are just uneducated about the risks. And they're, if, if, like, global governments become aggressive enough, especially in countries where, unfortunately, people don't have Second Amendment rights, there's not much of a recourse except for mass protests to try to get, you know, rest away control, at least in the short term. I think they could basically I, I think that they could put forth CBDC and keep it there for a year or two until hopefully people push them out of power. But you have to remember, like if they if they implement a CBDC and if a large part of their government supports it and if their military supports it, that's you're basically going to have a revolution on your hands. And that's the only way to get to get get them off that standard or you'd have to basically have mass bitcoin adoption that people opt out of their system those are the only two options because what else are people going to do you know most people would rather eat than you know deal with like having to learn more about cbdc and learn about the potential implications of of the long-term consequences and and in the short term they'll always implement this as something that's you know suave and easy to use convenient it will always be, you know, held under the guise of this is necessary to make the economy more efficient. And they probably won't even implement the worst, you know, aspects of it that we think of, at least not immediately. There'll be a slow grinding process. And so if they do implement it, especially in Europe, I think a lot of those countries are in trouble because I'm not sure if they have the political will to, you know, basically overthrow their central bank to stop it. But I think it's a toss up. It's 50-50. But what we can do is be loud and be vociferous now to stop them from even trying. Yeah, and I think now might be a good time to kind of introduce, you know, the overarching thesis. And, uh, you know, please correct me if I'm mischaracterizing you, but it seems as though you're kind of foreseeing a bit of a, like a hyperinflationary collapse of the dollar. And, you know, that that may take some amount of time, who knows when that will happen, but you seem to be more on the the inflationary side of this end game. And, you know, currently, I, I think, there, there's a lot of consternation over, you know, whether the Fed is going to raise rates enough to get inflation under control. Have they raised rates too far? And I found your analysis of the situation to be really interesting, where you talk about the fact that we could potentially see rates increase and that will actually feed inflation. And it, it seems as though there's kind of this circular trap that the, the Fed and the Treasury are caught in right now. So I guess, first of all, like, could you just kind of walk us through what the situation is between, you know, U.S. government debt and inflation, like how how has that process traditionally worked and, and you know, why is now kind of different for, for that fiscal situation? Sure. So, you know, in the past, when we ran into, you know, economic crises or financial crises, the U.S. government was, you know, basically not underwater. They had, they had enough balance sheet capacity to absorb any debt issuances that they, they, that they needed to make. And the, you know, it was mainly like isolated sectors of the economy that needed help. You know, in the 1980s, we had the savings and loan crisis. In the 70s, we had stagflation. And Volcker was able to break the back of inflation by raising rates to 20, the Fed funds rate all the way to 20% and then to 16% in May 1981. Because partially due to the fact that, first of all, our banking system was 
pretty fractionalized and the debt loads weren't insane at the at the banking level but also at the federal level debt to gdp was around 31% and so when you raise rates that high but the debt level is so low the the debt and the interest costs are still serviceable and in 2008 you know post 2000 and post 2008 we had still persistent international demand for us treasuries from foreign central banks and so if you look at the chart on fred of foreign central bank net holdings of us treasuries they've been rising you know steadily for the past 20 years and they peaked out in around 2015 when russia and china both basically stopped buying treasuries on net and you know in the last few years russia and china have both been selling treasuries and so the the fiscal situation for the government was was manageable because we had buyers of our debt internationally that were not creating new dollars to buy that debt they were just funding it through the exports that they made and so you know initially we were able to get out of these traps you know to 2000 2008 just by finding enough demand in the system to issue enough debt to get over the hump of of the deflationary recession that we were heading into so the government could do enough spending to increase you know increase spending and and improve aggregate demand but as we're running into 2023 and 2024 we have a situation where the treasury is more underwater than you know basically it's ever been since 1941 um and in October of 2021 Luke Roman pointed out in the newsletter that for the first time ever US true interest expense was over 111% of tre- of treasury tax receipts and so what that means is if you include social security payments medicare medicaid military spending plus just interest on the debt and you treat that as all interest because it basically is because these programs are never cut and they're all non-discretionary programs by the way 70% of government spending estimated by the cbo is non-discretionary which means the government government agencies are supposed to basically are forced to spend it no matter what it's like a budget requirement that they are supposed to meet this this amounted to over 100% of treasury t- of, of federal tax receipts and so for for the first time ever in 2021 we were in a situation where the treasury now does not make enough money to cover the true interest and that was with rates decently low and with us having a you know huge equity and and stock market boom in 2021 the heels of the massive QE program that the fed had initiated in 2020 and now we're in a situation where rates are 5% the debt is you know 31 trillion and going to grow much further than that and the biggest some of the biggest lenders in the world don't want to buy treasuries anymore and so my question that i've always run into is who's going to you know who's going to buy this debt who's going to finance this and and of course foreign private holders do have demand our domestic banks still have some capacity but that's not unlimited and it doesn't exist forever and the bigger problem is like you mentioned is what i call the proving bull debt paradox is when you have a treasury that's underwater to the point that more it's going to be paying more in interest expense than it makes in tax receipts for every percent that you raise the rates you also raise the rates on treasury bonds and by definition you raise the rates they raise the amount of government spending so you may you raise the amount of government borrowing that needs to occur to finance that spending and so the more you raise rates the more borrowing they need to do and the more funding the treasury or the fed has to do to the treasury in order to finance that spending and so you run into this issue where a lot like a lot of emerging markets have discovered you can raise rates and inflation soars higher you know you look at argentina as a great example of this right most keynesian economists would tell you that you know because of the phillips curve 
because of stagflation, because of the inverse, you know, relationship between unemployment and inflation, or because of, you know, higher rates and the dampening effect of higher rates, that the higher that the Argentine central bank hikes, the lower inflation should get. And yet the Argentinian central bank, basically their Fed funds rate is something around 80% and inflation is at 104%. And by the way, it's been climbing since it's been about 50% for the past two years. And so it's been hiking in the face of higher interest rates. And so what I've basically, you know, proposed is this paradox of when you have a treasury that's underwater, the higher the rates go, the more money needs to get printed in order to just keep things running, keep the lights on. And that's the situation that the U.S. Treasury is running into right now. You know, let's say this debt ceiling deal goes through. They're still going to have to find like they're going to refill the TGA by about one trillion. They're going to have to finance all of that at higher rates. You know, gone are these days of zero percent, zero point one percent, two percent rates. At 5% rates, the government's going to be spending something like $1.6 trillion a year on interest expense. And that is some completely unsustainable on a, on a long-term basis. And again, this problem only gets worse with the more the Fed prints, the more inflation rises, the more treasury spending that needs to occur in order to just keep the government programs funded, the more borrowing they do, the deeper in debt they do, and you know, the higher rates go. And so we're running into this situation where, like I said, you have these multiple feedback loops that will be keeping rates high and pushing rates ever higher. And if the Fed lowers rates, well, how they lower rates? They, by doing QE, like a massive amount of QE. And so that just makes the situation even worse. And so we're in a situation where there's no way out. The Treasury is beyond the event horizon. And the only things that they can do is, is basically ask the Fed to print money or they can default. And those are the two choices. Wow. I mean, listening to that, I'm just in my head thinking, like, if I were Jerome Powell, what do I do in this situation? Like, both both answers are incorrect. And it seems that, you know, this is really just a matter of, like, the system itself having these constraints. And so I know it's a super easy question, but, like, if you were Jerome Powell, like, what would you do in this situation? Is there a way out that you think, you know, would function mathematically. And like, I think kind of one of the hardest parts too, is like all of this is so political. Like there is all of this spending on, you know, social security and Medicare, as you mentioned, that is, is non-discretionary and, you know, it must be paid. And I can't see that, you know, being overturned anytime soon. Like that voter block is so important. So uh, all that being said, like what, what is there to do in this situation? Well, that's, you know, this is the, this is the thing that I've talked to or talked about with a lot of people. And Basically, my my thesis is that there's not really much anyone could do. You know, Powell's in a in an impossible situation, and if he raises rates higher, then that just means more strain on domestic banks. That means more strain on the on the global monetary system, the global financial system, as well as like we said, like more strain on the treasury. And if he lowers rates, the only way he's going to do that is by restarting QE. And so, like, there's not really any way out for him. For the Treasury, there is one option that's kind of unconventional, but it's been been discussed by Groman as well as Brent Johnson, is potentially revaluing gold. The U.S. Treasury has a huge amount of basically what are called unallocated gold certificates, and they're all valued at I think the I think they're still at the pre nineteen seventy one parity of thirty five dollars an ounce. Yeah, I believe. And if they revalue the gold, yeah, yeah. So if they revalue gold to say five or ten thousand dollars, they could basically help to reset the reset their balance sheet to a more much more favorable position but that would basically be almost an implicit default right like the central banks and the treasury have a 
they have an implicit agreement to keep the price of gold down because gold is viewed as basically an alternative asset and an alternative currency. And so if they do that, that could be you know catastrophic for them and would justify the other foreign central banks buying gold. In 2022, they had the highest or the, the year of highest foreign central bank net gold buying ever. And that would only increase if we basically implicitly defaulted. And so there's my point is that we've gotten to a point like this ship is so big and has so much inertia and so much momentum that trying to move it at this point is basically impossible. I mean, we would need to have a complete reordering of the government, slashing of almost every single of most government programs. And by definition, that would decrease that would cause a recession that would decrease GDP, because as everyone here knows, anyone who takes basic macroeconomics knows that the equation for GDP includes government spending as an additive part of the equation. And so if you reduce government spending, you by definition reduce GDP. And so if they like, let's say they cut their entire spending budget by half so that basically all their money just goes to pay the most essential programs and the interest on the debt right now, you know, that would cause five, seven percent drop in GDP within a couple quarters. And so, you know, that's that's a pretty severe drop. That's much more than we saw in 2008. And so there is no really there's no way out there. The only paths are default or inflation. And my bet is that they're going to do the inflationary route. And this debt ceiling deal kind of affirms my view. Well, I want to talk a little bit about like where you see Bitcoin playing into the transition. But now that you talk about the debt ceiling, I know you just published an article kind of talking about what happens next in that conversation. Do you want to take some time to update the audience on, I guess, the latest on what's happening with the debt ceiling, what they should be expecting and what maybe is like a distraction versus what's the real signal? Yeah, I know that it just recently passed towards a vote in the House. It was you know, proposed by McCarthy and agreed to with the Biden administration. And this deal is one of those that like, is basically like a non-deal. You know, it, it, it suspends the debt ceiling for two years. It allows increases in government spending, especially military spending. And after 2025, there'll be a removal of, of budget caps for most government agencies. And so what that means is, so most budget, government agencies, the way they function is they get a, a certain amount allotted to their spending needs for the year. And if they get close to that number, they usually get that same number plus maybe 1% or 2% more on average to fund the next year's spending, right? And so as a government agency, you kind of have an incentive to never spend less than you need than, than you should or than your budget allocates for because if you spend less than you need, they'll usually reduce your funding and grant that funding to someone else. So everyone wants to spend up to the budget and just like, you know, be a, an, asymptotic, an asymptotic line up right up to the budget but never surpassing it. But with, the, but with the new debt ceiling deal, it potentially allows all these government agencies to spend just whatever they quote unquote need and just tells the treasury to borrow as much as it needs to fund that. And so that opens the door for rampant government spending in a level that we would have never we have never seen before. And so the, the, the deal, I believe, is still being voted on right now and it hasn't passed yet. And we're kind of running up against a deadline because there's like 37 billion in the TGA. And if we don't get this deal passed by, you know, the week of basically or before June 5th, we're going to have a complete like the Treasury's going to have to start austerity measures. Janet Yellen is going to have to basically start cutting government funding programs in order to prevent default. She's going to have to reduce pensions for government workers, like, for example, the, the post office and the military pensions. So we're they're kind of in a very tight deadline. But even if they pass this deal, it's not 
it's not a good thing for the U.S. But there is no, in my, like I've said, we've passed the event horizon. There is no really good thing for the U.S. that can happen right now that they could potentially do. All the choices are bad. It's just which route do they want to take? Do, they, do we want to go down the path of a deflationary recession at, you know, some of the highest debt levels we've ever seen with 46% corporate debt to GDP and 132% federal debt to GDP? Or do they want to do the rut of inflation and just feed that fire and blame it on Jerome? later down the road time you know time will tell but most countries will choose the route of inflation if given the chance all right i think that's a pretty clear you know thesis there let's talk about bitcoin you know the point of this show is cosmic bitcoin talk about like like how bitcoin fits into what is happening on the macro sphere obviously you know your your vision is is the dollar than bitcoin that also is mine i'm kind of curious how do you see bitcoin playing into you know what is what you're anticipating sure yeah i mean and so this goes back to what my initial like one of my initial contentions was at the outset of the space is the dollar is such a powerful reserve currency that no other fiat can replace it and so the only thing and, and Brent Johnson said this too, like, you know, the U.S. will obviously kill to defend our world reserve currency status. We reserve, we invaded Iraq for, you know, partially that was one of the main reasons. And so if any other fiat currency attempts to become a reserve currency, it will probably be met with war. And so the only assets that can actually exist in this new paradigm that's been created are ones that are non-centrally issued and are censorship resistant, are durable and are extremely difficult to, to, to stop. And Bitcoin is top among the list of potential players in that space. And so in my opinion, I mean, so we're seeing right now, there's a couple countries that have legalized Bitcoin as legal tender, right? I believe it's the Central, Central African Republic of the Congo, El Salvador. There are a couple other countries considering it. But my contention is that it actually will be extremely interesting as we go forward in the evolution of our reserve currency status with small countries starting to adopt Bitcoin as an as a bona fide reserve currency. And, you know, this process will definitely start very slowly. It'll happen on the fringes. It'll probably happen mostly with countries that don't have the highest amount of dollar funding needs because the countries that do have higher amount of dollar funding needs probably maybe not have the balance sheet capacity or the will, political will to kind of throw the middle finger up at Uncle Sam in this way. But we could see over the course of the next several years a slow adoption of Bitcoin among nation states, even at the central bank level, of adopting Bitcoin as the reserve currency and trying to use it in international trade. And this creates basically an acceleration of the network effect that's already existed, where as one country and, and two countries and three countries join in, it puts more and more pressure and more and more basically market demand for other countries to, to follow suit. And this is the one thing the U.S. couldn't really stop. I mean, short of invading every country in the world, and telling their central bankers at gunpoint and their federal government at gunpoint to not use Bitcoin in trade, we wouldn't be able to stop this. But this requires forward thinking and you know, deliberation by government officials, which is rarely their strong suit. So I don't expect this happening quickly. I expect it to happen over time. But we could see a, a, a macro paradigm in the, in the leading and next decade where Bitcoin is adopted more and more as a reserve currency asset and it truly starts to chip away at the dollar's network effect. And it basically allows these countries to regain their financial and, and monetary sovereignty. Because, you know, something that we didn't even touch on before is most of these countries 
they're kind of vassal states to the United States because of their amount of dollar debt and because of the amount of funding that they need and their their persistent like persistent requirement for U.S. dollars. And so, if they're able to get off of this system and to stop being you know vassalized by the United States, then they can create a new you know global trading paradigm where they exist apart from the the current financial system and start to create a new one. And I don't know which country is going to be first. I don't have contacts at, at any at high levels at any of these, you know, small third world country governments. But I think it's probably going to be a small country, probably in Latin America or Asia to start. But Africa is also a contender. But I think that's how it will start. And eventually the power, the, the power of network adoption will become so powerful that it will basically force the U.S. as the last adopter to jump onto this new Bitcoin reserve system. Well, the interesting thing here, too, is, you know, you have the BRICS nations, which is kind of picking up steam. They're trying to create their own, let's call it, I'll call it, you know, fiat shitcoin and, and, and maybe turn that into a world reserve currency. They're trying to do deals on their own pre-existing fiats. And the BRICS already have a bigger GDP than the G7, right? It's not out of the question that over the course of 10 years that let's just call it a new Bitcoin coalition that has all the advantages of Bitcoin of being, you know, cash on the internet, the best money we've ever seen with no inflation, that that, you know, that coalition could have a bigger GDP than, you know, the G7 or the BRICS or something like that. You know, I personally am pretty bearish on, you know, on a BRICS coin, you know, overtaking the dollar, becoming a a global reserve currency. I'm kind of curious how your mental model is for uh, how that moves forward, you know, given all the geopolitics. Yeah, I think like, you know, BRICS is a, you know, every, again, everyone wants, a lot of people want to get off the dollar system, but it's difficult to imagine what comes next. And BRICS is one of the basically like brainchilds of, of these countries to try to move off the system, but it, it doesn't really work globally. And again, the reason is for, you know, some of the the things that we've already covered. If any of these countries want to be a reserve currency, or if they want to create, you know, band together and create a central reserve currency that only they issue and they back, first of all, you know, if the U.S. dollar is, you know, unstable and unbacked and no one knows really, you know, what what backs it, the same could be said of any BRICS currency. If if they use a commodities basket, for example. Well, who's going to audit the vaults of the commodity brokers? Who's going to audit the, you know, if they're going to create a gold-backed currency, who's going to audit the gold? Then how do we know that they're telling the truth and not lying and, and inflating their own currency supply to oblivion? Because there will always be that that temptation for these for these countries if they become the next reserve currency issuers. And also, you know, like there's these countries are not necessarily the nations you want to have an inordinate amount of power in the next iteration of the global monetary system as bad as the u.s is russia and china's you know record on human rights abuses are are horrendous and definitely worse than ours and so if you want to move towards a new world order that doesn't have the u.s dollar as the centerpiece of global finance and you want BRICS, you basically want a worse version of what we already have and anything they used to back it like i said will just be another trust me bro it'll be another centralized fiat currency that's backed by commodity or backed by gold um, or backed by a basket of currencies, which would just be like a CDS of other shitty currencies own currency or other countries own currencies. 
and it wouldn't be a real solution, which is why I think you'll see like limited adoption between individual nation states, but not global adoption of any currency that these countries come up with. And so there's like this move towards BRICS currency is emblematic of the severe desire by Russia and China, especially, but other nations as well to move off the dollar standard because they understand that the dollar standard it, it provides an immense array of benefits to the United States, not only in the form of what we've already talked about, the persistent demand for treasuries and for U.S. equities and persistent flows of capital into the U.S. and, and support of the U.S. dollar on the foreign exchange markets, but it also allows the treasury specifically basically a, a huge insight into the global financial system. Because if you think about it, any U.S. dollar transaction that happens globally has to be fungible with U.S. dollars domestically. So that means it has to clear through U.S. banks, either through Fed account or through the or through an account at a at a, a U.S. commercial bank. And so, and Joseph Wang pointed this pointed this out in his book Central Banking 101. So if you're another country and you're transacting in dollars, the Treasury, the U.S. Treasury, can see all of your transactions basically, and it has the ability through the U.S. banking system to censor you and to stop you from making loans in dollars. And so, although they cannot you know, directly command the euro dollar system, they can potentially freeze transactions and stop individual banks from transacting, which is why, for example, they're able to block Iran out of the global financial system or Russia or North Korea. And so there's this strong, strong desire of these countries to move off the dollar standard. And, and BRICS is just an example of, an, of, of that desire. But I don't think they've really understood Bitcoin because if they did, I think they would all very rapidly rush to adopt Bitcoin in, in global trade instead of, you know, whatever currency that they're tr tr trying to create. So, yeah, that's basically where I see BRICS. Unfortunately, they're kind of doomed at the moment, and it, they're going to run into the same dynamics that the U.S. has with Trivis Dilemma and, you know, the problems of being a central reserve currency issuer. Yeah, no, it's just kind of... It you know, the thought experiment of thinking about, you know, China winding down its manufacturing base to become, you know, a net importer is kind of laughable and just, I think, shows just how far developed the dollar network effect has become. It's changed so much of, of the global economy. And like, while you were kind of talking about, you know, countries trying to leave the dollar system, I, I was thinking more and more about what CK had to say about CBDCs earlier. And in the context of the banking crisis, we're, you know, just went through, we're currently going through right now, like what I've kind of seen is that, you know, we raised interest rates, you know, unexpectedly, you know, smaller regional banks, you know, Silicon Valley Bank were caught off sides. And then, you know, people start rushing into these like systemically important banks. And like kind of my reading of this is like, you know, if you wanted to impose capital controls on a population, it would almost be ideal to be able to, you know, collect everyone in a smaller area so that you can enforce those capital controls. So with the idea of like, you know, into something like Bitcoin, like, how do you see that situation playing out? Like, you know, there, there's a lot of ways we could take that. But, you know, is that something you have on your radar is, you know, capital controls in the US financial system, as people start to realize, you know, the dynamics that are at play? I mean, I won't rule anything out. Yeah, I mean, it, it look, a lot of people think that, you know, this implosion with SVB or FRC was intentional. And I'm kind of split on that. I think more so it's just, the you know the powers that be at the fed they kind of only really care about the primary dealers and the largest players in the market and they don't really you know they think you know like it doesn't really ma like it may not matter what happens to these small commercial banks as long as they're res rescued by the fdic 
or by another large bank. And the Fed kind of created this whole mess because, you know, they, they ran QE for for two years and kept interest rates pinned for the last seven years. And so all these commercial banks were plowing money into, you know, government securities, MBS, you know, CMBS at record low interest rates. And then with the QE wave of of liquidity into the market, they all got a huge cash injection. And because of, you know, bank capital requirements, they're required to keep most of that money basically in bonds. And so, you know, like, for example, SVB, they had their amount of deposits increased by something like 80% in 2022 alone. And if, if you look at their four-year growth, it's like 190%. It's like an insane growth of deposits. And most of these deposits are basically from, you know, small US tech startups, which is basically what I work with. And a lot of these companies have, they're all cash flow negative. They're all burning money. They're all like extremely, I would say, high beta. So they're all basically developing, you know, advanced software that could be used for defense or could be used for in the healthcare industry or biosciences or e-commerce. And they haven't found target market adoption yet. And so they're just burning money. And so they have a huge amount of cash at a single bank just to, to fund their operations. And so you had all these startups get, you know, hundreds of billions of dollars of cash and park all this cash at, at SVB, at FRC, and at several other banks. And then these banks p- turn around and put that cash into bonds at record low rates. And so no wonder when the Fed begins the fastest hiking cycle in history, you know, taking the Fed funds rate up 500 basis points in the space of like, I think it's like 19 months, you know, you're going to have some banks blow up. And it's extremely concerning regarding centralization of the banking sector because a lot of these banks, you know, they they got a huge inflow of deposits from from these banks that were collapsing. So I'm talking about like JP Morgan, for example, got something like $30 billion inflows of deposits from people fleeing from SVB and FRC and other small regional commercial banks. And then they can use basically use that money to turn around and buy the bank that is dying. And so essentially, they get acquisitions almost for free. And the FDIC, you know, basically underwrote the, the FRC acquisition and JP Morgan's going to get even larger with, with that. And they're going to also get guarantees on some of their, lot, on their bond portfolios so they don't take too many losses. And so the, the Fed, either intentionally or unintentionally, I don't know. It created this whole situation by honeypotting the banks in at record low interest rates and raising rates. And the, pro- the problems that exist at the commercial banks obviously also co- exist at the, at the state bank level, right? At these large primary dealers, the prime banks. But the, the difference is there's a huge gap in the market in perception of risk between commercial banks and, and prime banks because everyone understands that some banks are too big to fail and the government will print as much money as it needs to bail these banks out. But that is not true for these small regional banks that don't have that, that benefit. And so going forward, I'm, I'm, I'm not surprised that we're going to see more centralization of the U.S. financial sector. That's been happening even before this SVB financial crisis. There were literally thousands and thousands of banks in the 1970s. And then we saw you know, several thousand bank failures in the the savings and loan crisis in the 80s, and then increasing centralization in the 90s and 2000s, and especially post-2008, that's only accelerated. And so that does lay the groundwork, unfortunately, for much easier censorship and direct central control of our financial system. Because with fewer choke points of 
capital flows and dollar flows through our financial system. It makes it much easier for a central entity like the treasury to come and basically tell the banks, hey, this subset of people, you need to close their accounts or you need to stop these types of transactions from happening or these vendors are blacklisted and will not receive any more banking services. So yeah, it's definitely concerning. It's not something that's, I don't think is going to stop anytime soon, which is why we need to advocate and push Bitcoin adoption as much as we can and especially grow Lightning that adoption because that's what's going to expand our ability to escape this you know, kind of faltering system. Well, I uh, really appreciate you coming onto the show. I think that you've done a really good job, like going through history, talking about your thesis, talking about how Bitcoin fits into it all. It, you know, I think you're a very eloquent, you know, explainer and it shows in your writing, shows in your videos, definitely on this show as well. So thank you so much for joining. I want to encourage everyone who, who jumped on, you know, I was telling the bull at the beginning of the show that it was awesome meeting him in Miami. Uh, we're planning a show in more than a year in, in July of 20, July of 24 in Nashville, July 25th through the 27th. We're doing Bitcoin 2024. Really excited for it. We just are coming off Bitcoin Miami and that was 15,000 strong, hoping to, you know, smash 20,000, have the biggest event possible in Nashville. We're going to the, the, Music City Center, I almost said Miami Beach Convention Center, but the Music City Center in downtown Nashville. Nashville is a hopping city. It is a really hot city these days. I actually moved here, so really enjoying it. Was walking around with the MicroBT team last week. Went to, to downtown on Broadway. Checked out a bunch of different other spots in the city as well. Had an amazing time. They're totally Nashville. Uh, got a great community of Bitcoiners. Bitcoin Park, Matt O'Dell, Rod doing amazing things here as well. So really excited to show Nashville to the Bitcoin community and have Bitcoiners all together again at Bitcoin 2024. We're also doing Bitcoin Amsterdam in October. More to be announced there as we're getting deep into planning that as well. But Bull, thanks again for coming on. You know, want to give you a last word to our audience. Yeah, sure. Yeah, so I guess... You know, a lot. I've I've written a lot. I have it in a variety of places online. You can find basically all of it on my website, which is thedollarendgame.com. So if you want to read any of my writings for free, you can go there. I also, like you mentioned, started a Substack where I'm writing basically updates on the market, macro reviews, problems I see developing with our monetary system, and that's proviumbullsubstack.substack.com. And I have a book, The Dollar Endgame, which is available on Amazon, if anyone wants to check that out as well, um, and, and, and a YouTube channel. So I'm, I'm balancing a lot, but all my content is out there. I have a ton of stuff. I also have, if anyone is curious and wants to read Twitter threads, if you go to my profile, I have a pinned meta thread, which has the compilation of basically all my best Twitter threads, which are, some of them are new, and some of them are just kind of distillations of parts of my book talking about the, the U.S. as a reserve currency holder, talking about the global dollar you know, network effect, talking about Bitcoin, talking about yeah, dollar finance and, and macroeconomics and the Fed and, and their, their dilemma. So if you want to check that out, you can go and check it all out on my profile. But thanks again for having me on. This has been a great experience. And I'll definitely be there in 2024. I'm looking forward to Nashville. I've never been there. So yeah, I think it's going to be a good time. 
Awesome. Thanks, Bull. Yeah, we really appreciate you taking the time again. And I, I just really recommend everyone give Peruvian Bull a follow, check out his Substack. He's putting up, you know, really good in-depth work, but it's also highly digestible for people that are, you know, still climbing the road to financial literacy or, or trying to dip their toes in the water of macro. I found it, um, you know, just really useful frameworks for thinking about how the situation might unfold. So yeah, again, Bull, you know, great job up here today, man. CK, thanks for joining us. And we will see y'all next week for Cosmic Bitcoin on Wednesday at 3 p.m. Pacific and 6 p.m. Eastern. Peace, y'all. Thank you, everyone. We're also on Bitcoin Magazine podcast. So subscribe to that, too, if you want to hit listen to a recording. Proving Bull, you're the man. Spencer, you're the man. Thanks for hosting Bitcoin Magazine. And uh, yeah, we'll be back next week. Peace. Awesome. Thanks, everyone. Have a good one. Thank you, Miami, for the last three years in this amazing city. The whole world shut down, but Miami welcomed us with open arms. We want to show Bitcoin to the whole world. We are taking the conference on the road to set the stage for Bitcoin in a new city. Nashville. Bitcoin 2024 is coming to Nashville in Tennessee. A city that is known as a music and freedom city. Bitcoin 2024 in Nashville from July 25th to 27th. Plebs, if you're like me and want to gain a deeper understanding of what's going on within the Bitcoin market and broader macro environment, then you need to subscribe to Bitcoin Magazine Pro today. There's a free and a paid version of this daily newsletter where our market analysts Dylan LeClaire, Dr. Jeff Ross, and Sam Rule break down what's going on in the market so you don't have to. Subscribe today at BitcoinMagazinePro.com.